HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Consider Bardwell Farm, the first cheesemaking co-op in Vermont. For more information, visit www.considerbardwellfarm.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Welcome to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. Already thanking my guests for bringing me a wonderful little apricot jam. You're very welcome. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm. And I am going to attempt your smaller version of your name, and then you can explain what your full one is. It's Yasi Arefi? Yasi Arefi. Arefi. Okay. I tried to do phonetics, then I realized I don't know how to do phonetics. I spell (laughs) that stuff out. But... It's a tough one. And Yasi, what is your whole name? My full name is Yasmin Arafi Afshar. And where are you from? My father's from Iran. So Iran, I mean, jokingly, I was saying, the only thing I really know about it is the Iron Sheik. Yes. As sad as that sounds. <laughs> but I actually did love the Iron Sheik and never felt him to be the bad guy of the WWF. I thought he was one of the most outgoing, gregarious people. And I'm like... I want to be like the Iron Sheik someday. Yeah, I think or that's maybe Junkyard Dog, but... Culturally accurate. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and he has a hilarious Twitter account. and He does. So he's a he prolific, uh, uh, you know, person. Yes, an ambassador of the culture. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I guess. Well, okay, let's, let's, let's stop talking about wrestling and start focusing on food. Because aside from this apricot jam, I've been looking over your blog for a while now, mm-hmm. actually. And I've always kind of been enamored by... The tone, uh, both writing and uh, photography, um, apartment to be baking company. Yes. And we'll get to its impetus in a little bit. But it, something about it, uh, it took me a while to figure out. I'm like, how is she manipulating these photos? How is she making these seems so hearty, so tangible, so real? And it's film. Mm-hmm. And, you know, having grown up in a generation of photographers that actually 
learned and shot on film for a while and now seeing you know uh, digital and instagram and filters there's something about film that's just you know not replicable yeah there's a there's a texture to it that i find really really unique and even though there are lots of presets and programs now to edit digital photos to make them look like film i think that it's very very difficult to replicate the contrast and the color and the texture that you get naturally when you shoot film. There's a true mood about it. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, yeah. I know there are, are things like, I don't even know what the acronym stands for, VSCO, mm-hmm. the Visual Supply. Visual Supply Company, yeah. And mm-hmm. th- they do masks or something that make it look like certain rolls of film. Yeah, they have uh, four sets of presets that mimic film stock. Like you can make something look like Kodak Portra 400. Or, you know, Ilford 3200 or whatever it is. I was a, I think I was a, what is it, Trimax, Tri-X? Tri-X, yeah. Yeah, Tri-X 3200. They've, they've got that one. And I think I pushed it to 6400 for big-ass grain. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, I love that black and white yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah. But you mentioned, you know, the Kodak Portra. Mm-hmm. What's special about that role? What, what are its, you know, color profiles, its, its actual mood? I tend to use... Portra 400. I used to use NC, but they don't make it anymore. Um, so I just use a straight Portra 400. And I think that there's a a little bit of a cool quality, I want to say, to that film that I really love. Um, and the colors are just so bright and vibrant. And the contrast is really, really wonderful. Even more than like the 160, for example. I think that the 400 has a nice it has a nice grain, but it's not too much, and it has a really nice contrast and really beautiful, vibrant color. I think as people, you know, get particular with putting a Valencia filter on Instagram mm-hmm. or, you know, doing something like that, that you got attached to a film. I know I was a, I think it's NPH or NPZ. No, Neil Patrick Harris is NPH. <laughs> so I think it's the NPZ, the Fuji film. Uh-huh. I think 800 that I love because it had this high contrast, but had the sheen about it. Mm-hmm. Like, which yeah. wasn't glossy. It was kind of this luster yeah. about the film. And I just thought it made food or restaurant life seem so much more energetic. Yeah, definitely that luster. But with the Kodak portrait, too, um, I know you shoot with a 50 millimeter portrait lens. Um, it, it, there's a lot of stillness. There's a lot of kind of quiet tones mm-hmm. to it, too. And I love your work because even though it is quiet and calming, it's active. You know, there are things always happening. There's an angle where it's maybe the finished, almost finished, or just after being finished image. Mm. But you love these little steps, these little intricacies. Where does that come from? Um, I think that it's just really, it's really interesting to me to see the process of something being made and being consumed. So maybe a picture of an unbaked pie and then a picture of a slice of pie with, you know, one or two bites left is a really much more compelling photograph than a perfectly styled, perfectly crimped crust on a, on a whole pie. I just think that those moments where everything isn't quite perfect or maybe isn't even perfectly straight are far more interesting and active than a perfectly styled still image. So I am not going to discredit your family without knowing them. But <laughs> let's let's talk about when you're growing up, what the table looked like. You know, mm. you had two parents, you say, that both cooked yep. Iranian food. Yeah. And we'll talk about what that cuisine is in a second because mm. that in and of itself is a great discussion. But 
you know, do you have siblings? I do. I have an older brother. So how long did that still life last on the table before you guys actually dug in the dinner? We are, I think safe, it's safe to say that we are a family of eaters, so not very long. <laughs> not very long at all. Yeah. So it's kind of like that image, too. You know, that still only lasts for a second. Mm-hmm. And it's all that kinetic energy put into yeah. it, which is, you know, tells the story or is that much more intriguing. Yeah. Now let's go to Iranian. Not Iranian. Iranian. Iranian mm-hmm. food. You told me this amazing little quip about what your father has stashed underneath his pillow. It is true. My my dad has a notoriously large stash of saffron hidden in his room somewhere. I said it was under his bed, but I don't even know if that's <laughs> true. It's just in there somewhere. And whenever we run out in the cabinet, he always seems to have more. And, I mean, for people that don't know what saffron is or what it looks like... Mm-hmm. Explain that whole gamut, you know, its physicality and and its essence. Mm -hmm. Saffron is, I'm probably going to get the plant anatomy wrong here, but I think it's... Oh, we don't need a genus or anything of that sort. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It's part of a flower that's hand harvested. It's it's a very thin thread that I think is maybe a stamen um, of a crocus flower. And it is harvested and dried... And it is, I think, the most expensive spice in the world. Um, yeah, it, it's more than gold, I believe, yeah. by the way. It's these very thin kind of red red threads that when you crush them and add them to dishes, um, it gives it a bright, vibrant yellow color. It's really commonly used in paella. That's what gives paella its yellow yeah. color. Yeah. So did you grow up eating paella? Not so much paella, but that's a dish that I think people know it for. Um, my family used it more for rice dishes but kind of in a different way like we would cook it with onions and zeresh which are little sour barberries and we'd put it on top of rice that was the most common thing that we did with saffron or make a a marinade for chicken and grill the chicken yeah see i love these little things that seem so common to us not that barberries are yeah but you know these little dried fruits and Mm -hmm. stone fruits that end up in you know savory preparations Mm -hmm. you see raisins you see you know, pomegranates, you see all these seeds and uh, sour things Yeah. go with, you know, lamb or go yeah. with, you know, uh, again, basmati or something of that sort. Yeah. Uh, has that informed your palate, you know, as far as baking, as far as yeah. even going out to eat? For sure. For sure. There's my dad is this, like a sour addict and I am, too. They're really common. They're it's really common to have pickles on the table with Iranian food, which I don't know if people know. Um and pickles in Farsi are called torshi, and they're all different kinds. There's The most common one is a pickled garlic, and people take garlic and they pickle it for years and years and years. I'm talking like five or ten years, um, and it turns black and sweet, and it's just like the most delicious accompaniment to rice, like rich rices and saffron, or in stews and things. You eat this little burst of pickled flavor that's so delicious, and they're all different kinds. You can make you know, eggplant torshi, and there's, there's a common one that's made of lots of chopped vegetables that you eat with, with rice dishes and meat dishes. Um, so I love sour pickled things. I, if I eat a bowl of chicken noodle soup, I squeeze a half a lemon into it before I eat it. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I, I know elements of, you know, kind of Persian, Middle Eastern cooking. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I see a lot of cinnamon. Yeah. Uh, you know, you see some fresh herbs like parsley. Mm-hmm. You see other dried fruit like dried limes again yeah. for that sourness but mm-hmm. aside from maybe kebabs i mean what are mm-hmm. traditional dishes the things that we ate most growing up 
were these really hearty meat stews. And traditionally, they're made with lamb. My family mostly made them with beef because it was just more readily available. Um, and they're all different kinds. Uh, the most common one that we ate was uh, a stew that was made of lots of greens. So it was chopped up cilantro and parsley and uh, scallions and and spinach. And those greens were all chopped really finely and sautéed and then added to a stew of beef and onions and cooked forever. And then you would eat that with basmati rice and yogurt and and pickles. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, you grew up in Seattle, which I recently visited. It's, it's more diverse than I thought it was going to be. Mm-hmm. Um, so you see a lot of cultures. Yeah. Where, were you one of very few, you know, Iranians? Were you? No, did you I have wasn't. A big community. We we had a. My dad has a, a community of friends and family that lives in Seattle, and also when I was growing up in school, from elementary school, all through middle school, I had many Iranian friends and many half Iranian friends. And it wasn't until high school, when I went to kind of a more suburban school, that I felt like I was the only one, and I realized that oh, maybe being half Iranian is kind of different than, you know, than normal. Um, Because I never, I never ever felt like I was a minority or it was weird that I was, that I was half Iranian at all. Schooling, education. Mm -hmm. Was it about food? Was it, I know you kind of split your time Mm -hmm. between, you know, baking, cooking and photography. Mm -hmm. But what, what did you want to do? I know you came to New York, eventually worked in a whole bunch of kitchens here and baked, but where did photography come into the fold? Uh, I studied photography in high school and college kind of casually. Um, I have a BA in psychology, which is I'm not really using in my daily life, but I have it. Um, but I went to a liberal arts school, so I took lots of art classes, and I got to study study photography and study art, and it was always something that I had done casually, and it was always something that I really, really enjoyed doing. And what were some of your first subjects? Was it always drawn to, you know, that that galette cooling on the windowsill? Mm-hmm. Or was it, you know, portrait of my friend? Mostly, People playing yeah. outside. I think I did all of the traditional portrait of my friend, portrait of my feet kind of, <laughs> kind of photography, yeah. for sure. And then it wasn't until I really got into food and started working in a restaurant and cooking and baking a lot that I started uh, gravitating more to, towards food photography. So let's talk about that gateway. Mm-hmm. I mean, you already adept at, you know, your heritage, your lineage, your mm-hmm. cuisine, the food that you grew up with. But what expanded that? Um, I had always loved food, and food had always been a big part of my life. And when I moved to New York, I wasn't really sure what I was going to do here. And at first I thought, well, maybe I'll go to culinary school. And so I went and I toured all the culinary schools and and I figured out really quickly that it was going to be really expensive. And so instead I decided to just get a job at a restaurant and kind of see where it took me. And so I got a job at a restaurant as a reservationist and really just disliked it quite a bit. And I was baking at home and I kind of convinced my boss that I could I could bake for him for the restaurant and he gave me a shot and it worked out great yeah yeah which restaurant was this i worked for a small chain of restaurants called alice's teacup it was like a bakery and a tea house yeah yeah a lot of people are aware of alice's and you know um but 
the convincing part is what I love is, you know, you know, you have this passion and the only way to get better is to work through it and you just need that one person to kind of believe in you. Yeah, exactly. And that's how it happens. So what were the first things like after saying, yeah, I can do that. And you go home and you have that oh shit moment for a second. Like, what did I get myself into? I didn't really have a no shit moment. Yeah. I was pretty confident that I could handle it. It was more... I guess my oh shit moment was the first time I tried to pick up a fifty pound bag of sugar and put it in the <laughs> put it in the bin. Yeah, because uh, you forget you forget that that's the bakers that have to do all yeah. of that work. Um, but you know we made a lot of fairly simple pastries, scones, and cookies and things. So um, the work the work part was pretty simple. So was it all OTJ on the job training, or mm-hmm. did you have a little bit of? you know, knowledge beforehand? Did you bake with your family, friends? Yeah, I always baked at home. And I I got, there was a, in the early 2000s, there was a huge cake decorating trend where people were making these crazy fancy elaborate cakes. And I thought for a second that that might be what I wanted to do. So I I'd kind of practiced a little bit of that kind of thing at home. And then I realized that I wasn't so into that and I was more into the food. And so I started really almost studying cookbooks and I bought a lot of cookbooks that were really inspirational and really really taught me a lot about not only baking but combining flavors and things like that well we're actually gonna take a quick break and come back and I've been trying to do the acronym quickly in my head in the cookbook you know learning rather than on the job (laughs) and the learning because I feel like a lot of people do actually you know advise themselves of how to cook that way these days but we're going to find out that and so much more after we come back you've been listening to the food scene on heritageradionetwork.org we'll be right back Today's program has been brought to you by Consider Bardwell Farm. Spanning the rolling hills of Vermont's Champlain Valley and easternmost Washington County, New York, 300-acre Consider Bardwell Farm was the first cheese-making co-op in Vermont founded in 1864 by Consider Stebbins Bardwell himself. Rotational grazing on pesticide-free and fertilizer-free pastures produces the sweetest milk and the tastiest cheese. All of their cheeses are aged on the farm in their extensive system of caves. 
Consider Barwell Farm is also a big supporter of Heritage Foods USA's No Goat Left Behind program. No Goat Left Behind is a serious effort launched in 2011 by Heritage Foods USA designed to introduce goat meat to American diners and provide a sustainable end market for dairy animals. For more information, please visit www.considerbardwellfarm.com. Hey, Joe, I think at the end of that advertisement, it should say, Go Goats or something of that (laughs) sort. But uh, yes, actually, take all that to heart. Consider Bardwell. Thank you. Um, And... You know, no goat left behind mm-hmm. is, is is an amazing and Goattober happens every October with Heritage. Check into it, but let's uh-huh. let's get back to the the sweeter side of things. Um, you were talking about cookbooks, and mm-hmm. I know from reading your blog that there are a few that certainly influence you. But what what are the ones that stand out? What really got you motivated into baking into you know yeah. uh, the sweets? I love I love Alice Medrich. Um, her book Pure Dessert was one of my first favorites. Um, but also the last course by Claudia Fleming, which I think is really commonly yeah, loved. It's ingenious. Yeah, it's it is. It's, I think that would probably that's probably my favorite, and it's probably the one that was the most varied in techniques, um, and that taught me the most for sure. That's an incredible book. I think it's out of print now, but anyone who loves baking should definitely seek it out. Yeah, no, it's certainly a staple of a lot of pastry chefs in New York. Yeah, you know, shelves. Um, it's always like a fun thing to go into restaurants, and I'm sure you have this at Alice's Teacup, mm-hmm. that there are cookbooks, yeah. you know, and people reference those cookbooks all the time. You know, recipes aren't these spontaneous things that happen. Mm-hmm. You need knowledge and reference. Yeah. So I just look at every chef's book. I'm like, oh, I don't know what that is. And I look at it and yeah. usually add it to my library. Mm-hmm. Um, that's why I have no room in my house anymore, because it's just cookbooks galore yeah me too me yeah. too <laughs> so what are some of the newer the current so some of the the newer ones that i love um i love nigel slater's books which aren't super new but ripe and tender are both really wonderful and i love kim boyce's good to the grain which is a book um that uses a lot of whole grain and alternative flowers which is really wonderful and really beautiful too shot by quentin bacon i think yeah yeah it's a great book um yeah those are Kim Boyce. I'm all about Kim Boyce this summer and her rye pastry. Yeah. Well, yeah. that cover, too, is very enticing. Yeah. It reminds me kind of of your stone fruit and yeah. berry galette. Yeah, those were totally inspired yeah, by yeah, her. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Um, I know cookbooks are an ambition of yours, and mm-hmm. I have no doubt in my mind. I'll mark this date that I say this now will become true, that you will be shooting a cookbook in the next year. Well, just your, your style, your, your approach to everything is just so befitting. Of, Thank you of you know beautiful things um but you're also a blog and Mm -hmm. you know there's a difference between those two things Mm -hmm. uh how do you motivate yourself to you know weekly come out with something new have this you know uh you know great idea or have this beautiful visual in the summer it's really easy (laughs) yeah it's really easy in the summer because that's when we have the greatest variety of fruit and vegetables, and those are the things that I love to bake with the most. I mean, I love a good salted caramel sauce and a chocolate cake as much as the next gal, but it's the summer and spring fruit that I really love baking with the most. So why did you do yourself an injustice and start, you know, to be baking company in October of 2010? <laughs> well, I actually started the blog because I very, very briefly had an Etsy shop where I sold, um, I sold baked goods. And I, I did it for two holiday seasons and 
I kind of just fizzled out. I wasn't really feeling passionate about it and it wasn't, I wasn't putting enough effort into it to really grow the shop. And so I decided to just stick with the blog because it was the baking that I wanted to do at the end of the day. It was, I wanted to bake things and I wanted to share them with people. And I figured that I could do that through my blog and I could kind of do it at my own pace. And, and it's been really wonderful. Recent posts. Well, we'll talk about that lard crust in a second. But I think the most recent one I saw was the berry and apricot galette, mm-hmm. you know, which I put up on the write-up uh, for, you know, today's show. But yeah. it's just a stunning image of how beautiful and kind of organic, and I don't mean like labeled organic, right. uh, which I'm assuming it probably is, um, how organic something like that can look and feel. And not that it's effortless, but how easy and delicious you know yeah. something like that can be i don't know if you felt the same way about constructing well, yeah, that. yeah i mean galettes are one of the easiest easiest things you can make the hardest part about it is making a pastry and once you found a pastry recipe that you like that's simple for you to make you can make a huge batch of it and just keep it in your freezer and then fill it with ever with whatever fruit is around and that day i happened to have really beautiful apricots from red jacket that had nice little rosy patches on them and nice fat blueberries and blackberries and I just made a really simple saffron sugar and tossed them in the sugar and put them in my favorite rye pastry and that was it see and that's where it creeps back in that saffron Mm -hmm. you know there are all these small little instances yeah of your heritage that poke through your baking which is kind of wonderful yeah but let's talk about that pastry I know that's a rye crust but (laughs) you got me kind of obsessed about this lard crust oh yeah why have you converted what what gospel has made you go the way of lard? Well, I was on a I was on a shoot and there was serendipitously some lard left over from the sh- from the shoot and I took it home and the only thing I could think of to make with it was was pastry and I made a a pie crust that had the lard in it and it was really soft, much softer than I was used to. Uh, the crust was really soft, but it baked up really beautiful and and really tender, much more tender than a butter crust. Yeah. Yeah. So you're, you've been converted. I don't know if I've been converted. I can't really, I can't discriminate against an all butter crust. Yeah. Yeah. So what are some of the favorite recipes on the blog? Because you have so many and it's so many wonderful things, but you must have something that's dear to your heart. Um, I do love, I love those apricot and berry galettes. Those are really recent, but they're definitely in the top three things that I've ever made. Um, I really love making simple jams, and most of my jams follow kind of the same proportions, and so they're all really similar. But I made last summer I made an apricot jam with saffron and a little bit of rose water, which was really lovely. And pies, I love making pie. There's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. So we're in the depths of summer. Mm-hmm. What kind of pies are upcoming? Well, right now we have a lot of stone fruit going on. So your peaches and cherries. I like to mix fruits in pies generally, something a little bit sweeter with something a little bit sour just to have a nice balance of flavor. So usually that would mean like maybe peaches and blueberries or something because blueberries can tend to have a little bit of a a little tart kick to them while peaches are just straight up sweet. Give me a couple other combinations. Combos. Oh, I love rhubarb and blackberries, mm-hmm. which is incredible. Um a rhubarb with any berries is actually really nice. And I also love, what else, apricots and raspberries. 
And currants. Oh, raspberries and currants is really good. Oh, really? Yeah. See, I always look at currants and I kind of like gloss over them. Yeah. As if not knowing, you know, where they fit in. Well, there's, I mean, you don't need a lot of them to really make an impact because they have a lot of flavor and they're very tart. But I love a balance of sweet and tart in fruit desserts. So aside from your recipes, Mm -hmm. let's let's talk about your photography again and Mm -hmm. where your work can be seen. Because I think server uh what was it this year or last year my years are mixed up mm-hmm. you know, named one of your sites as one of their favorites yeah that was that was just a couple of months ago so yeah. it was on sites yeah. we love yeah um and i was very excited and happy for you and i think i contacted you shortly thereafter i'm like this is the time i'm finally <laughs> gonna contact her she'll be on the food scene um you know You've done work for Food 52. Mm-hmm. Um, I think even Gourmet had some accolades for your site when you began. And, mm-hmm. you know, you've gone through that rung of things. Who do you shoot for now? Where, Where is your professional imagery? I've been working for a lot of the smaller quarterly print ma- magazines, which has been really fun. Um, I have a few stories coming out in the new Pure Green magazine, which is a, it's a sustainable living magazine based in Canada, which is really fun. Um, and I shot something for a Wilder Quarterly recently, which was great. Uh, I shoot for Bon Appetit for the website on a pretty regular basis. And I just started a column with Food 52. So, Very cool. Yeah. And what is that column about? That'll be a, It's a weekend baking column. And the first one will hopefully come out this week. Awesome. Yeah. So what are you baking this weekend? Well, I baked them a pie, of course. <laughs> yeah. You're not going to tell us, no? It's a secret. It's okay. a very secret pie. Excellent. Well, secret formula. I'll be I'll be checking out that secret pie yeah. this weekend. Um, and you were just telling me that you had traveled home and gone and seen a friend and shot for pure green. I did. I went and saw my friend Camille, who lives in she lives in rural Western Oregon, kind of off the grid. And so I went and spent some time with her family and her animals, and basically spent twenty four hours in her life, which was really fun and interesting and so different from the life that i'm living now in new york obviously yeah Yeah. so what did you bake while out there actually camille is an accomplished baker and she bakes things in her barbecue which is very impressive yeah she made the most incredible pie with boysenberries and and raspberries that were the size of apricots (laughs) this is the most giant beautiful raspberries i've ever seen yeah well did you take any images of the barbecue baking i did okay i did and it's going to be in pure green I hope so. Okay. Yeah. Well, if it's not pure green, I'm coming after you. Yeah. I want to see those outtakes. It's super cool. That's super so cool. Super cool what she could do with her barbecue. Yeah. Yeah. Well, actually, I think you should do a blog post about barbecue baking now. Well, I I don't have a barbecue, but maybe someday I will. We will find one for you. <laughs> we will offer that up yeah. in trade for a barbecued pie. Sounds good. And if you don't know, you know, your work, you know, your, your ambitions, please, please follow, you know, this blog, this website, follow, you know, Yasi's work. Thank you. It's it's just stunning and makes me hungry for pie. It's good. But let me spell out your name so everyone can actually find out where to find you and hire for you for a plethora of cookbooks. Yes. It's Y O S S Y A R E F I and it's apartment baking apartment two baking co dot blogspot dot com. So it's A P T two B. <laughs> apartment 2B. Yep. Apartment 2B. Baking co- Just Google. You'll Just figure Google it out. Apartment 2B. It's, it'll come up. Just look for the pies. You'll find it. Excellent. I'm the only Yossi Arfi out there. <laughs> yeah. Thank you again for being on the show. Yeah, 
it's my and, pleasure. And uh, look forward to that barbecue baking class. Yeah. Excellent. You've been listening to the food scene on heritageradionetwork.org. Hope to have you back here next Tuesday at 3. Cheers. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.